We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Joan Alanto. Don Palumbo. Hi. Hi. You know, is it sad that I don't think I have that memorized? No, I was actually thinking about that the other day. And I only have it memorized when, when, I, when I listen back to our episodes sometimes if we have to. And that's the only time that I can I can say it out loud, but I don't have it absolutely memorized. So I would, it's like song lyrics to us. I mean, you some know, song you know, lyrics. Like the, we know like the chorus. I know the chorus of the Midwest murder intro by heart. I don't know. Speak for yourself on that. Like that's... <laughs> There, there are no, what, what did you just say? You know, the, the, I know the, the chorus of our intro by heart for sure. There aren't any lyrics. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, We're and back for another. <laughs> you got a pity laugh. <laughs> yeah, it was a, no, that was genuine laugh. <laughs> We're most, back for yeah. another fantastic event at Minot's own Roosevelt Park Zoo. Last year around this time, we were outside in shorts, dresses, tank tops. We were battling the false swarm of bees. And this year, we damn near had to wear rain jackets. But thanks to the team here at the Roosevelt Park Zoo, they dialed up our solution. It might be a little bit nice outside, but this was this is where we are, you know, and I'm glad for them and I'm grateful to be here with everybody. So I'd like to give a shout out as well, of course, to my favorite and by favorite, I mean best zoo in North Dakota, the Roosevelt Park Zoo. These folks work hard year round for the animals in their care. And it's a big deal to have such a beautiful zoo in our community. I think I speak for most of Minot when I say we appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is by far the, the, and it's, it's, this isn't coming from bias or anything. This is the best zoo in the state. And it's, it's because of all of the hard work that you guys do. And, and you can, you can see it on the animals. Uh, and thanks. Bam. Yeah. Big thanks to them. And a big thank you to everyone who takes a little bit of time out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. We love to read these, good or bad. So if you haven't done it yet and you do like the show, please, by all means, jump on in, drop us a review in iTunes that you can also review on Spotify. And Don, I'm kind of curious, what are the reviews saying these days about Midwest Murder? Yeah. Big thank you to everybody who who does that. We We so appreciate it. Minnesota Matt 37 gave us five stars. Captivating show. My wife and I had not heard of this show. We stopped into the Fatfish Brewing in Dickinson on the first leg of a 5,000, dear God, that's a lot of miles, road trip. I don't even know how many hours that is. Road trip west. You could hear a Somebody pin drop. Somebody do that math for us. <laughs> you could hear a pin drop in a full brew pub. Naturally, I was curious, so we listened to one podcast. My wife was hooked, and she's hard to find a good podcast for. The content was so riveting, we listened to 30 episodes on our trip. Oh, 
Wow. Cool. I just got um, I just got I just got the Jonah bumps right there. Only taking breaks when it was too much to think on. Thank you so much. Great show. Good. I'm glad they put that last part in there because I was going to rep- recommend a, a good therapist, maybe some happy happy movies, something like that. So, so big some, thank some you. sort of upliftment. That's really cool that they just just kind of randomly discovered us passing Absolutely. through fat fish. Yeah, that's Very super cool. cool. Yeah. Military wife 66 gave us four stars. I'm addicted. I do not generally listen to podcasts. Last year I began listening to Midwest Murder and I'm hooked. Jonah and Don set the scene by telling about what occurred at the year of the podcast story. Sometimes they say things that make me cringe. (laughs) Absolutely. But admittedly, that's part of what I also like about the podcast. Their chemistry, laughter, opinions, and arguing make the show so addicting. I hate waiting for the next episode to post. You're addicted to our arguments. I love it. Yeah. That's that's what I pulled from that. And I'm glad we make you cringe. You're (laughs) welcome. Yeah. You know what? I... I also make I also say things that make me cringe. So I of course same. <laughs> we cringe. To you. We're cringing with you tonight on Midwest Murder. We're heading back in time by about two people, all the way to the year 1894. It was a time of great economic depression, which lasted for the better part of the 1890s. There were 136,000 mine workers on strike in Ohio demanding for better pay. The biggest story of 1894 involved massive railroad labor strikes that began with the Pullman strike in Chicago before spreading nationally and involving upwards of a quarter of a million workers in 27 states who stood up against the egregious labor practices of the era. The strikes culminated in violent clashes resulting in over 70 deaths, dozens of injuries, numerous arrests before President Grover Cleveland deployed the army. During this, while this was all going on, on June 28th that year, Grover Cleveland signed a law making the first Monday in September of each year a national holiday. So then he, sent, then he sent in the army to kick everybody's ass. And, right. and like, it's like, you guys are going to get this federal holiday. Now I'm sending in the troops after you. And Right, um, right. Yeah. Happy, happy Monday off. That means absolutely nothing because now we're killing most of you. And you're, if, if we don't kill you, your job will. Basically. Yeah, it's it, yeah. the the story of the Pullman strikes is wild. The dollop covered the Pullmans, and it's a whole. It could be a whole other podcast altogether. Also, in 1894, Coca Cola was sold f- for the first time in bottles. Coincidentally, bottle opener. The bottle opener was patented that same year by William Painter, and he's the same man who invented the crown cork bottle cap just two years prior. The same one we all use. So that guy was really he knew some shit was coming. The first college basketball game was held between the University of Chicago. They defeated the Chicago YMCA with a score of 19 to 11. Rounding out. In basketball? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. In, with, were, they, were, they, were, they, were they playing with a balloon or like a, <laughs> like just a strap of leather? I mean, what? I couldn't get the highlight reel. I'm not, I'm Interesting. not sure. <laughs> Interesting. And in 1894, serial killer H.H. Holmes was arrested in Boston after being tracked there from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons. Staying present and aware is a problem that has haunted humanity since the Industrial Revolution. As quickly as people can come up with more efficient ways to do tedious tasks, bosses come up with newer, even more tedious tasks to fill the time. And so much has been streamlined, but none of it eliminated. Our brains are pulled in a hundred directions every day, so we pursue awareness to escape stress. 
Absent gurus praise mindfulness meditation as a means of focusing our attention. We practice breathing exercise to keep from feeling overwhelmed. Staying calm, centered, and above water is like a second job, and that's not unique to modern times. Way back in the 17th century, John Dryden put some poetic spin on the value of awareness with the poem Happy the Man, which reads in part, Happy the man and happy he alone, he who can call today his own, he who secure within can say, Tomorrow do thy worst, for I have lived today. If you believe, like I did, that maintaining awareness sounds like a totally harmless concept, one that couldn't possibly be twisted into something terrible by human nature, then I would like to remind you of two things. One, you're listening to a podcast dedicated to the worst and most memorable murders over the past 150 years in one small region of one small country of one small world, and we have over 70 episodes. And two, nothing exists that hasn't been corrupted by human nature. Yeah, we do a good job. We do a really good job of <laughs> Really corruption. good job. Really good job. But what or who could corrupt awareness and living in the moment? Q. Harry Hayward. He committed one of the most heinous crimes in Minnesota's history way back in 1894. He was a man who flitted from vice to vice his entire adult life. A man who always seemed to have three dastardly plots simultaneously running through his brain. His audacity impressed the famed Pinkerton Detective Agency. He was a man who cited the aforementioned poem as he waxed eloquent about living in the moment his entire life, just mere hours from his execution. Hayward lived in a cold bubble of manipulation and desire, existing outside behavioral norms to such an extent that his brother Thaddeus called him a, quote, moral idiot. By the time Hayward met Catherine Ging, a dressmaker in the bustling frontier metropolis of Minneapolis in 1894, he had been living off his parents' goodwill and his own gambling winnings for about a decade. Hayward's parents, William and Latisky, owned various properties in the city, including an apartment complex called the Ozark Flats. That's where Hayward and Ging both lived. Ging had worked hard to build up her dressmaking business in New York City before relocating to Minneapolis. Her shop there was popular but lacked consistent business. Determined to make it work, she poured all of her time and money into the modest shop. Her social circle was non-existent. When Catherine wasn't working, she hung out with her young niece, Louise Ireland. Louise moved from New York with Ging to learn the dressmaking trade in Minneapolis. Now, the commitment it takes to make a small business work was equally intense then as it is now, and Ging's singular focus made for a fulfilling yet isolated life. Catherine had just turned 30. Business was flourishing, but she was lonely even desperate. Little did she suspect that her blend of distance from family, ambition, and desire for company made her an ideal mark for a predatory con man like Harry Hayward. Compared to his brothers, Adrian Thaddeus, Harry was a bit of a black sheep. 
Thaddeus was a physician, and Adri held down a steady job working for the family business, whereas Harry hopped from job to job and place to place, never settling into anything. While traveling, Harry cultivated a fairly robust gambling addiction, sometimes losing as much as $2,800 in a single session. That's over $90,000 today. And I feel like that's the only math we ever really do is converting the value <laughs> of money from past to present. Guaranteed. And it's usually, I thank you for doing the math ahead of time because usually I'm over here on Google right. like you, and my brain is just smoking, You're just typing away. And then that's the only math I do. So Boom. thanks, you took it away. I appreciate it. <laughs> I did the homework ahead of Thank time. Thank you. <laughs> Harry gambled in every major city of America, from San Francisco to New York City, Baton Rouge to Chicago. When funds ran dry, he'd write a desperate, whiny-ass letter to his parents, and they'd keep him afloat. Despite his lack of gainful employment and disregard for familial relationships, Harry maintained a place of privilege in the family, and his parents always took his side in family disputes. Adrian, in particular, got brushed aside by the parents. He and Harry never really got along. He was the middle brother. And women were magnetized to Harry, whereas men were utterly repulsed by him. And he didn't win himself many bros at the parties. He made it a personal challenge to seduce a man's date away from them and then abandon their date the second he got bored with them. Oh, man. He seems super fun. <laughs> I bet he's so cool. Like he, humans he sure are humans he are are just transactional, basically. That is yes. that is it. That's that's a great way to put it. As time went on and Harry sunk deeper into gambling, he began to view other people based solely on how much money he could squeeze them for. I swear to heck, I did not read ahead. I, I did I not. I swear. <laughs> Some of his earliest schemes involved burning down buildings his family owned in order to collect on the insurance. Ging and Hayward first met through a large group of friends who got together on weekends to dine, drink, and ride around the city in carriages. So it's legitimately like cruising Broadway in our day. That's, that's their cruising Broadway. One night, someone suggested hitting up a gambling parlor. Being the most experienced gambler, Harry volunteered to take the group's stake and do what he could. After a little while, he emerged from the parlor with a fat stack of winnings, which the group spent on food and drinks and a couple extra long, sweet-ass carriage rides. A new format for their evenings was set. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but it is. It's <laughs> now they knew how to party. Their evening started with gambling. They'd spend whatever they won on that night's party favors. So it was a potent combination of youthful abandon and silver spoon entitlement. Most of the group came from rich families. Catherine Ging, however, was a small business owner from modest means. She had money because she worked her ass off for it, and it was difficult to keep up with the careless decadence of these new friends. Still, if this was the price of maintaining a social life, she was happy to pay it. Plus... There was attractive, witty, dangerous in a sexy way, Harry Hayward. The two began a relationship that Hayward later claimed was purely financial. Though they often found themselves on solitary carriage rides and romantic dinners and alone in Ging's or Hayward's apartment more often than the average lender-borrower setup. For months, the two 
courted, as dating was called at the time, and still is if you're oddly detached from society. (laughs) Hayward invested in Ging's business, which Catherine was itching to expand. He lent her 2500 bucks over the course of a few months, then gave her 7000 in early November of 1894. Because Catherine didn't necessarily have collateral for such a large loan, Hayward suggested she should take out a pair of life insurance policies with him as the sole beneficiary. Well, it, may, it might seem a bit, I don't know, stupid to sign a life insurance policy over to a guy you've just started banging we have to They cons- were courting. Don't oh, yeah, get too sure. We have to consider that by the end of 1894, Ging was hurting financially. Hayward and his friends were an expensive crew, and ha- and Harry regularly leaned on Catherine to fund his gambling. This was another game of his. He would loan Catherine counterfeit money, then collect on the loans. She also tried her own hand at the parlors and lost a substantial sum. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's loaning her counterfeit money and then... She's taking out loans for him and he's paying her back in counterfeit money. Okay. Then she lost a bunch of her own money at the parlors and Hayward went so far as to getting a psychic medium to compel Ging to loan him money. After considerable pressure, she purchased two separate $5,000 policies, both with Hayward as the beneficiary. Monetarily, she was now worth more dead than alive to Harry Hayward. Catherine had followed his every whim for most of the year they were together. She had bankrolled his gambling and accepted loans on quite dubious terms. With that, Ging unknowingly entered the last month of her young life. By December 3rd, she would be lying face down on a gravel road in the outskirts of Minneapolis, a bullet hole behind her ear, her body bruised and bloodied from being shoved from a moving carriage. Hayward was extremely busy during Ging's final month, hustling around the chilly Minneapolis streets and engaging in some extremely bold pre-murder tactics. First, he visited a doctor he knew and asked, as nonchalantly as one does, Hey, Doc. Where do you suppose on the human body I can shoot a person and kill them the quickest? Okay. The doctor pointed out a spot behind the ear where a gunshot would almost certainly be fatal. Now, if that surprises was, you. Was that just just shop talk? I mean, yeah, was For that, science, we'll say. Yeah. yeah. One of those, for, you know, like on Facebook, okay, for science. Yeah, I'm I just curious. Like that. Just, just curious. curious. Asking for a I've been friend, wondering. Asking for a friend. I don't know. <laughs> now, if, if that surprises you, let me say, it is the least obvious thing he did in preparing for the murder of Catherine Ging. Before Ging purchased her life insurance policies, Harry went to nine different insurance agents and asked them questions like, does this policy still pay out if the insurance is a homicide victim? He even asked one agent about the injured person falling down an elevator shaft, by accident, of course, 
and whether or not that could be a reason the policy might not pay out. Okay, I know that Minneapolis is the big city for you know for us folk here in North Dakota, but uh, in 1894, I can't imagine the population was. It was a bustling metropolis. Enough, I, I I think small enough for a word to get around for between nine insurance agents. That you know, hey, this guy is. I mean, send a carrier pigeon at that point. Send yeah. a fox. <laughs> I don't like, know. Well, he like, already lit the smoke signals earlier, right? Like, like fox the fox the the thing to the to the yeah. next agent that it's, just says, you know, hey fella, uh, this guy, be on the lookout for him. Yeah. Okay. I I mean, his come efforts on. about as smooth as a waxed ass. Wow, <laughs> wow. Finding a willing trigger man That's turned a, out maybe to... the weirdest thing you've ever said. <laughs> and I said that yesterday. We were in Williston yesterday, and I know I said it yesterday. That could be you've just upgraded Good. to that being the weirdest Good. thing. That's up there keep, with my, I'm gonna that's, keep going. That's up there with my yeehaw that I just let out a little bit ago. Finding a willing trigger man turned out to be more difficult than Hayward anticipated. As previously mentioned, his mesmerizing charm had little effect on men, though that didn't stop him from making his plans painfully obvious to a bunch of guys. First, he asked a coachman named Peter Vallely if he could ever kill someone. When Peter said no, Hayward seemed to accept the answer, then asked if any of Vallely's horse teams were skittish or nervous. Peter told him, well, yeah, there's a couple of high-strung teams, but nothing I can't handle. So then Hayward casually inquired if Peter thought one of those teams could be spooked into something like Running off a cliff? <laughs> Valley said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think so. Hayward gave up on that and went to his brother, Adri. Now, you may remember Adri as the brother Harry didn't like, which makes his next move a complete head-scratcher. Harry went to Adri's office and started talking abstractly about how poor the business must be doing, how Adri was going to go bankrupt. Adri, bemused, said he was doing just fine financially. Then, with no foreplay whatsoever, Harry asked Adri if he would kill a woman for $2,000. Adri said, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> he, then, is the, he is the middle child after all. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> then Harry said, Adri, you wouldn't have the balls to kill anyone. Oh, I didn't mean that to the middle child. Yeah, but that's, no. what, Adri, that's what Harry said. Okay. And Harry's the, and, we've established that Harry's a dick. Like no, absolutely. I would. And he's I, the dick younger brother. Yes, like yes. I or not not. Uh, uh, yeah, Adri. No, he's just the the middle brother. Like no, you're an idiot. I'm not doing that. Right. I just, yeah. He's like no, I'm okay. good. And then Harry said, I just wanted to say, I just wanted Harry to clear, told Adri, I want to clarify my position. It's because you don't okay. have the balls to kill anyone. <laughs> I want to clarify that that was not my position with Adri. Yeah. Okay. You you know go that forward. Adri has balls. Yes. Well. Yeah. Is what you're saying. No. Go forward. Figuratively, literally, historically, yeah. historically, there were balls that Adri had. Harry didn't believe it and called him on it, okay? We have... And the brothers started bickering over whether or not Adri had the cojones to kill anyone. So finally, Harry offered Adri 100 bucks. After he declined the $2,000 offer, mind you, <laughs> Harry then offered Adri $100 to kill a random woman, child, or cripple. Oh, and we don't say that word again anymore. That's what oh. he said in his words. Oh. That's what it was said. 
Oh, dear. He told Adri, quote, I killed a few people. It's no big deal. Adri wanted nothing to do with it and threatened to go to the police. Harry casually said he would kill Adri if he did anything of the sort. Then Adri said, quote, Harry, you're going to hang for it if you ever come after me. And for whatever reason, the mention of hanging absolutely triggered Harry. He pulled off his coat, rolled up his sleeves, and stormed at Adri, his face twisted into a mask of hatred. Harry stopped just short of actually laying hands on his brother, instead pretending to choke him by clenching his hands in the air in front of Adri's face. Almost like like Darth Vader, like like with the like the you know the throat like pretending to you know, but then two-handed like, though, right? I know, but like then the same. Was he expecting like the same thing? Like, uh, like no. After the strange nothing, it was a Star Wars. After the strange like, air choke, Harry left, but he never let up on badgering Adri. For the next few weeks, Harry constantly reminded Adri that he would kill him with his bare hands if he went to the police. Adri was so unnerved that he went to the family attorney, Levi Stewart, and told him everything that Harry said. Stewart filed the information away, but didn't see any actual harm coming from it. Stewart's Stewart's reaction was, your brother's full of shit. This is more of the same from him. Adri was shaken, but he was reassured. Finally, Hayward pressured a Swedish immigrant named Klaus Blixt. Klaus worked in the Ozark Flats building as an engineer, which didn't mean the same then that it does now. Essentially, Blixt was in charge of the steam-powered machinery in the building. It was a menial, low-paying, dangerous job, and Blixt, a first-generation immigrant, still was looking for the land of opportunity he heard so much about, and he was ready to do anything to get himself out of this dead-end position. When Hayward, the smooth-talking, dapper son of the owners of the Ozark Flats, came to him with a little proposition, Blixt saw a path to a brighter future. Sure, he might need to do some unsavory things, but Hayward seemed like a man who had it all figured out. Blixt thought he would get get in on some easy money and then get out. Hayward immediately conned Blixt into burning down a barn and then blackmailed him with that crime into joining his murder insurance scheme. Blixt was in way, way over his head, and he agreed to go along with Harry's plan as long as it didn't include any violence. He said, I'll do whatever you want, but nothing violent. So now that Hayward had his hitman, he visited his brother Adri again. The two, the two guys didn't speak two sentences of normal conversation, before Harry started talking about his new accomplice, how the man he had chosen had more nerve than Adri, and he would see to it the murder was carried out. Adri, yet again, reminded his brother that he would hang if he went through with this scheme. Harry, who apparently hated the word hanging, again rushed his brother. But this time, he didn't just strangle the air in front of Adri's face. Instead, He kind of ran his hands up and down Adri's face and neck while making cartoonishly evil faces. 
<laughs> now, I'm guessing that was intimidating in person, but it sounds absolutely goofy to describe it. So not like Darth I, Vader, Don, like a weirdo. Right. Like, uh, I could do nothing but laugh or just... or. Be a bit repulsed, if you will. And, and Adrian was and, scared shitless and, about and it. And chicks were like, hey, that guy is <laughs> sexy. Like, I they wanted a piece of him, let me tell you. They wanted a carriage ride with him. Yeah. 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 Yep. The weirdo with the, you know, just this trying to be sinister. <laughs> Neat. With most of the pieces in place, Hayward began to shuffle madly between different means of killing Catherine Ging. He described each one of them to Klaus Blixt in between threatening to get him thrown in jail for that fire. After learning that forcing trained horses to jump off a cliff would be difficult, Hayward told Blix they could probably just push her out of a speeding carriage and let the fall kill her. Then, not wanting to leave things up to chance, Hayward suggested that Blix pretend to drop some money on the carriage ride. Then, once they were pulled over and searching for the money, he could bonk her with an iron bar. You realize if he would have just gotten a job, <laughs> we wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about this one today. Yes. Or maybe if his parents wouldn't have pampered him his whole life either. Well, that too. They should have made him get a job. That too. Yes. But I mean, he could have gotten a job. But also, yeah, and it's not their I mean, fault. So I'm, in, I'm increasingly annoyed with him just for <laughs> wasting my time. Like that is, that is, that's the level I'm at with him. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, following the iron bar bonk, Blixt would drag her body back into the carriage, get the carriage going again, then throw her corpse onto the street and it would be like an accident. Hayward didn't think the coroner would fall for this, but he did think he could bribe and or sweet-talk the coroner. Then, Hayward decided he should pivot from the carriage concept, instead focusing on the elevator at the Ozark Flats apartments. Hayward would knock Catherine unconscious with a hammer, then have Blixt open the doors of the elevator. The two would position Catherine's body so that her head was hanging out of the elevator. And since this was 1894 and safety measures didn't exist, they could ride the elevator up a floor and cut off Catherine's head. <laughs> He is the wily coyote of killers. <laughs> Blixt wasn't convinced and didn't want to kill anyone. Harry made another pivot. After noticing a heavy steel beam in the basement of the Ozark Flats apartment building, Harry told Blixt he wanted him to cut it down to a swingable size so he could use it to kill Catherine during a carriage ride. And yes... Hayward was right back to the carriage idea after failing to sell his ludicrous elevator decapitation concept. I wonder, I mean, I just wonder what didn't sell it for him. I mean, what part wasn't, yeah, for Klaus, wasn't working? Yeah, the head, I think, for Klaus was uh, the issue. After a few nights and a few rides, Harry told Blixt he just couldn't pull it off and make it look authentic. It would have to be Blixt in the carriage and... It would have to be with Hayward's gun, just to be sure. Despite all of his planning and confidence, despite offering Blixt $2,000 to do the deed, Hayward still couldn't get him to agree to the murder. But Hayward 
didn't want to wait any longer. In his twisted mind, Catherine had to die, and the sooner, the better. Instead of threatening Blixt with jail, Hayward casually mentioned killing Blixt's wife. This was an unexpected soft spot, and Klaus Blixt immediately agreed to go along with anything if only Hayward would leave his beloved third wife out of it. Okay. Hey, you know, actually, people died easily back then. Maybe yes, he was with her. Yes, of course. Absolutely. I take back most of my laughter. Hayward, <laughs> Hayward wasted no time putting the scheme into motion. Around 6 p.m. on December 3rd, Hayward visited Blixt in the basement of the Ozark Flats, offered him a flask of whiskey to brace, brace his nerves, and told him Ging had to die tonight. He even sweetened the pot offering Blixt an even split of the $10,000 life insurance payouts instead of the $2,000 he offered before. Generous. Blixt accepted, taking Hayward's gun along with two different brands of cartridges. After the murder, Blixt was to clean the gun, insert the other brand of cartridges, and return it to its usual hiding place in Hayward's apartment. That way, if Hayward was investigated, big if, there would be nothing connecting his gun to the murder. Clean it, new carts, you're going to be good. Upon leaving Blix to prepare, Harry ran up to Ging's apartment, knocked, and asked Catherine's niece, Louise Ireland, if Catherine was around. Ireland told him, nope, she's out, and he left. Hayward knew perfectly well where Catherine was going, but his alibi would need to be airtight in order to avoid getting caught. Feigning ignorance of Catherine's whereabouts to her niece was just one piece of his puzzle. After scarfing down a quick supper, Hayward jogged about a block from the apartments to where he had instructed Ging to park a carriage. The two, ro- the two rode a short way to Kenwood Boulevard, and Hayward told Catherine he would meet her there and she should stay put. He then got out of the carriage, jogged back to the Ozark Flats. Once there, He checked in with his parents, more fuel for his alibi. He composed himself, put on some formal wear, and went to Catherine's apartment again, only to be turned away again by Catherine's niece. Now, for whatever reason, Harry again went and talked to his brother, Adri. The two hadn't had a conversation end without Harry pretending to air-strangle Adri for a couple of months. But that didn't stop Harry from giving his brother a bit of a heads-up of the events of the evening. He mentioned that Adri might want to be seen out and about in public, that having an alibi was going to be important come tomorrow. He also asked Adri to stop by his apartment later and check to make sure his revolver was still under his pillow. Next, Hayward sent Blixt ahead to hang out in a vacant lot near where Catherine was waiting. Hayward was exceedingly careful not to be seen with either Klaus Blixt or Catherine Ging on the evening of December 3rd. After giving Blixt a head start, Hayward walked up the road to where Blixt waited. The two men then walked together to meet Catherine, who was a little put off by the fact that Hayward brought a stranger to drive her around instead of just bringing a carriage himself like he told her he would. However, she went along with it, agreeing to ride out ride out with Blixt to her and Harry's meeting spot. Ging and Blixt rode away into the freezing December evening, neither knowing that Hayward's trap was snapping shut 
around both of them. As they rode into the darkness, Hayward moved into the next phase of his alibi, a very public date with Mabel Bartleson, an attorney's daughter he'd been courting for a few months. As Hayward's visit was last minute, Mabel had to rush to get ready to go out, but the two made it to the theater just as the curtains went up on the show. And that was a bit of luck for Harry. Dozens of people saw them make their entrance. His alibi was all but ironclad at this point. I mean, aside from the strangeness with his brother and Blixt and those insurance agents and that one coachman, aside from that, his alibi was impeccable. Yeah, I feel like he's got this one in the back for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, and that one doctor who told him the best place to shoot someone. Other than those 13 or so people, <laughs> Hayward was about as clean as a bleached asshole. Okay. As Bartleson okay. and Hayward... you know what? Hold on. If you talk... If you say one more thing about butts, I'm, I'm done with you for the day. Okay? Okay. As Bartleson and Hayward watched a no-doubt racially sensitive play called A Trip to Chinatown, Ging and Blixt rode into the wilderness surrounding Minneapolis, out towards Lake Calhoun, where the city's official boundary ended. Things were quiet and awkward, though the two managed a bit of small talk about Catherine being held up at gunpoint during a carriage ride with Harry, and how she and a friend hid their rings in their mouths to keep from being robbed. Suddenly, Klaus Blixt pulled out Hayward's revolver, and he placed it on the seat next to him. Catherine got scared. But to calm her, Blixt said that Harry mentioned the robbery and that they'd been held up, so he wanted to send the gun as an added security measure. The carriage jounced on some uneven bit of road. Catherine braced herself and looked back, maybe to see if they had hit an animal or whatever. And in that moment, Blixt raised the gun, pointed at the back of Catherine's head, closed his eyes, and fired. The echo cracked across the frozen surface of Lake Calhoun as Blixt swung the carriage in a U-turn. Then he noticed the blood. It was everywhere. He was panicking. The seat, the side of the carriage, the robe that Blixt brought for the ride, all of it was spattered or soaked in Ging's blood. And as the panic settled in, Blixt forgot for a second that he was supposed to ditch the body. The team attached to the carriage automatically headed back for the city, and the flickering lights of the Minneapolis brought Blixt back to his senses. He lifted Ging's body and dropped it to the ground, rolling below. It bumbled under the rear wheels before coming to a stop on the side of the road. The horses led the carriage back into city proper, where Blixt abandoned the blood-soaked rig near Lindale Avenue. The horses, knowing their job was finished, began trotting towards their home stable. Blixt returned to the Ozark Flats around 10 p.m., used his keys to open Hayward's apartment, cleaned Hayward's gun, switched cartridges, and stuffed it under Hayward's pillow. He took the spent cartridge downstairs and tossed it in the furnace and then went home to his sleeping wife. It didn't take long for Ging's body to be found. The road where Blix 
Blixt ditched her was on a common streetcar route, and the first person to walk past the scene noticed her body immediately. It was grisly, in part because the violence of the fall after Blixt pushed her body from the carriage and she rolled under the wheels. Police were called in, and the body was transported to the morgue, and the small caliber bullet wound behind her right ear was determined as the cause of death. Her body was in gruesome shape. Her left eye hung from its socket, pushed out by the force of the gunshot, and her nose was broken with cuts and bruises marring her face. More police were dispatched to the Ozark Flats to check out her apartment and break the news to her niece. Upon returning from his nice evening at the opera, Harry went to Blick's department to ask about a leaky water meter, which is what conspiracy to commit murder was called in 1894. The two men talked loudly so that Blixt's wife could overhear, and Blixt mentioned that a woman from the fifth floor had been hurt while out driving, or so his brother-in-law had told him. Hayward acted aghast and volunteered to go up and check things out. And I bet his acting was, like, on par. Like, it was just (laughs) really, really good. Like, I I bet he did a great job. Yeah, I think Broadway ready. (laughs) Harry arrived at the fifth floor and ran into the police who had broken the news to Louise Ireland and were now looking around her and Catherine's apartment to see what they could learn. Harry walked in and immediately volunteered to aid in the investigation by offering information about Catherine Ging. Naturally, this interested the police, who told him he could head down to the station in the morning to make a statement, seeing as how it was now after 11 p.m. Hayward, though insisted on leaving immediately. He rushed to the police station where coroners were still in the process of examining Catherine's body. And Hayward promptly acted over the top guilty. He stopped just short of twirling his mustache and cackling. I, I shit you not. It's like this guy read a book on how murderers act around their victims then did every one of those things. (laughs) Hayward began by telling the police that he knew exactly what happened to Catherine. She was killed by someone she hired to steal money from him. He then started pressing the police to help him recover his money from her. He asked if they had access to her safety deposit boxes. He was certain the money she had stolen from him would be held in one of those. Then he approached the niece, grief-stricken, and started pressing her, trying to get her to agree with him about Ging's secret scheme to con him out of his money. This can't be what gets him caught. Can't be. I mean... Hayward, just wait. I know. Sorry. Hayward then looked at the officers and declared himself a top suspect. Seeing as how he and Catherine were so close, and she owed him a substantial amount of money. Then it's like he came back online and realized how weird he was being. He looked around and said it was, of course, impossible for him to be guilty since he, quote, liked her so much. And since he was at the theater when she died. By this time... Everyone was staring at Harry, listening to him talk circles around himself. Then he mentioned her insurance policies and his role as the only beneficiary. This guy just couldn't stop making himself look worse. 
When asked to explain the relationship he and Catherine had, he pivoted, acted inconsolable, and started moaning that he had faced total financial ruin, and he dodged their question. I mean, 120-some years later, it's 130 years later, somewhere in there. I know it's, I, I know that it's, it's, we've had a lot of practice to lie and, you know, to, to develop <laughs> those skills as humans. And to detect it, those it, Right, it, it, right. Police work has, I mean, I don't think leaps and bounds even covers it, right? But, um, I, I mean, what a dummy. Like, at this point, like... <laughs> Shut yourself up at this point. I mean, I mean, but this is this he's is he's not weird. done incriminating himself yet. Oh God. Okay. Hang on. <laughs> his, 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 he had one more move done. One more move. <laughs> Harry Hayward then produced a contract he coincidentally had on him, which detailed the agreement between him and Ging regarding a loan he gave her for twenty five hundred dollars. So after this madcap period of self incrimination. Hayward managed to spit out one piece of evidence before leaving that made himself seem a little less guilty. He said, well, what self-respecting murderer would kill someone who legally owed them money that was about to be paid back? Yes, excellent question. We'd all love to know. But <laughs> what... It's it's like 1895 tops here. 1890. Eight, yep, it's December 1894. Okay, yeah. so I mean we're we're pushing the new year here. Uh, yep. He wanted to get you his were money the, before you Q4. were you were literally the only person that has a copy of that contract. You're the only person. The one. And his timing is just impeccable I, with that. I I mean even even I mean it would at that point it would take years to get a copy of the life insurance policies. I. I well, you'd be surprised how quickly they could get paid out back then. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. In 1894? Absolutely. A lot of, lot of experience there? I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. but... No, yeah, with Belle Gunness and the research, she sure. was turning that money over sure. constantly. Those insurance no, right, policies that's paid that's quick. Fair. I'll give you that one. Someone but, died. You walk down, you walk a block well, down the street, ride yeah. on your horse, get a carriage ride down there, you bring them the but, death but certificate. I'm, but I mean more you. for police to get a, yeah. get a hold oh, of sure. it, right? Like, yeah, you know, neat. They don't give two shits at that point because it, it's been five years. You know, I mean, there are so many things he didn't have to say. Not that I want him to get away. That's not, I don't want him to get away with it. Oh, but. he was quite the volunteer. <sighs> so after, after that, that two-hour period of self-incrimination, Harry headed back to the Ozark Flats, stopping briefly at Blick's apartment to do some more alibi work. You know, talking loudly about how Ging had died while holding $7,000 he loaned her. And then he headed to his own apartment and went to bed. No doubt, he was really tired after painting a huge target on his own back multiple times. I'm sure. The next morning, for whatever reason, Harry invited Adri to his place so he could gloat. Adri heard about Ging's death and naturally assumed it was Harry, so when he showed up to his brother's apartment and found him laughing and saying, quote, it's like finding money, it was 0% shocking for Adri. One major reason that Hayward and Blixt were caught so quickly was Mayor William Eustace, famous in Minneapolis for his tenacity and inflexible adherence to the rule of law, Mayor Eustace took the Ging pers murder personally. The inhuman way she was shot and tossed in the street felt like a strike against his city. 
Luckily, Harry Hayward had ran his big mouth to the investigators in charge of the case, so Eustace had a solid place to start his own investigation. He called Hayward into his office the day after the murder and grilled him for several hours. Hayward sharply answered every question, but his nonchalance and arrogance chafed Eustace. Hayward accounted for his movements the night before with minute-by-minute accuracy. But the startling timeline set off alarm bells. After tiring of the smooth talk, Eustace invited Hayward to accompany him to the morgue to see Ging's body, hoping to ruffle Hayward's feathers. But Hayward stonewalled him and went home victorious, leaving Eustace with little more than a bad feeling. On December 5th, Ging's funeral mass was held. Hayward was in attendance, tailed by a detective assigned by the mayor to watch his every move. After the service, Catherine's body made the cross-country trip to Auburn, New York to be buried. After leaving Catherine's funeral, Hayward gave an interview to a reporter at the Minneapolis Tribune. When he left the building, Mary Eustace pounced, asking more questions before suggesting they move to a nearby hotel where a county attorney and a handful of detectives were waiting. This is where Harry's strict adherence to his alibi and his reluctance to do anything that might seem guilty started to work against him. If he said no to Eustace's request and started walking home, it would make it seem like he had something to hide. But if he said yes, it was one more chance for him to slip up, which was really dangerous given the crowd he was going to be speaking to. Hayward's unwavering belief in himself won out, maybe his arrogance, and he accompanied the mayor to the nearby West Hotel. He answered questions breezily, firm in his conviction that the mayor and his assembled team of law enforcement would be incapable of finding anything concrete for evidence in his well-rehearsed story. I find it interesting that how, when you do these older stories, how the the mayor, even the older ones that I've done, like the 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 paper, like the journalists, right? They play such a bigger part in investigation. Absolutely. Where now there's not a you know an ice cube chance in hell that that that, that those players would you know would be even in the game, right? It's just sure. it's, so the mayor's like they'd want to shut them you out, know, asking all these questions and yeah. Of course, Hayward couldn't stop himself from saying and doing things that just wouldn't occur to your average person, such as yet again bringing up Catherine's insurance policies and his position as the sole beneficiary. He mused aloud to a group of detectives, an attorney, and the mayor about whether or not he'd be allowed to collect on the policies or whether the suspicious circumstances around Catherine's death would make the process more difficult. Then... In one of the silliest criminal moves of all time, Hayward voluntarily invited everyone back to his apartment where he pulled out the Colt 38, the very revolver no. that had been used in Catherine's murder, and handed it to the detectives. He was so sure of his cleaning job and the cartridge switch, he just had to show it off. After Hayward's little dog and pony show, the crew left his apartment with the same feeling as the mayor. Really? I, I mean... Of, they knew 
Hayward had to be involved in the murder, but how would they prove it? Hmm, I wonder how. And do you wonder where, like the 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 you know the gumshoe detective things came from in the you know in the twenties and thirties? Right like this bullshit, like this, like really, like this actually happened. I, step you know? by step. Good golly. And then I, I followed up with a good golly. Oh, okay. Shoot gosh dang, Don. You, know, you sure come did. come on. This is... I'm leaving. Well, with the help of Adri... So we, we're going to return to Adri, the outcast brother who Harry couldn't leave alone. As previously mentioned, Adri had outlined this entire story, the entire story of, of his interactions with Harry, as well as the murder plot with family attorney Levi Stewart. Stewart, who was familiar with Hayward, with the Hayward family through his real estate connections, told Adri that the whole scheme, of course, sounded like typical Harry Bluster and bravado, and he had put no stock in anything Hayward said. Now, that may not seem like a very lawyerly response. At that time, it was enough to calm Adri, and the two men went about their lives. Then, three days after that meeting, Poor Catherine turned up with a bullet in her head, and Stuart realized he made a grave mistake. He dashed off a letter to Assistant Hennepin County Attorney Albert Hall, explaining everything. He didn't leave out a single detail that Adrian had related to him less than a week before, including the name of Hayward's new accomplice, Swedish sad boy Klaus Blixt. Things didn't quite go as expected, and Adrian was arrested along with Harry and Blix on December 6th. Two days later, on December 8th, Adri told his story to police, with Blix spilling the beans not far behind. The two men's accounts matched to a T, which meant ill tidings for Harry Hayward. Also, all nine of the insurance agents, the doctor and coachman, each gave their own statements. Harry Hayward and Klaus Blixt were indicted by a grand jury on first-degree murder charges on December 11th. Adri Hayward was free to go, but so deep was his fear of Harry that he remained in protective custody until after the trial, which was scheduled for January 6th. Harry's initial legal team was led by family lawyer W.E. Hale, but not for long. Harry refused to admit guilt and was far more worried that a lynch mob may storm the jail and hang him from a tree. Mob lynchings were not uncommon in Minneapolis at this time, and it had just happened a few weeks prior. I feel like anywhere in the time frame. Right. In Harry's mind, a lynch mob would be the worst way to go. He planned to take matters into his own hands. And he asked the family attorney to smuggle in a revolver so he could take his own life. The lawyer refused. Harry didn't stop there. Then he begged for poison, which W.E. Hale also refused. Then Harry threatened he could just get a running start in the hallway, put his head down, and smash his own skull against the brick wall. Oh, dear. Okay. I, this guy really had to have been the blueprint for Wiley e. Coyote. I, I mean, <laughs> while his constant suicidal plotting may have been a source of annoyance, that wasn't the reason Hale ended up refusing to represent Harry. 
since a defense attorney usually needs the whole story from their client in order to do their job, Hale asked Harry to tell him the truth about Catherine's murder and his part in it. Instead of simply focusing on Catherine's murder, Harry recounted a dizzying spree of crimes he committed, including a trio of other murders in three different states. The manner in which he relayed this information so thoroughly disturbed Hale that he stepped away, refusing the paycheck and leaving Harry's case to famous St. Paul defense attorney named William Irwin. Irwin came with a steeper price tag, which Hayward's parents sold the Ozark Flats building to pay for. Oh. Yeah. It's probably not a great choice. Well, (laughs) William Irwin came with a really excellent track record as an orator and defender of workers in a time when union protections were in their infancy. So they were buying the right guy. A couple of different things there. Right. I, I mean, okay. Mom, mom and dad really got Harry's back. Mm-hmm. He's, their, he's the baby. Because of the media frenzy surrounding the trial, the venue was switched from the Hennepin Courthouse to the Minneapolis Labor Temple, which featured more space, both outside and in. On January 6th, the first day of the trial, people packed the street near the temple, jostling for position, hoping to catch a glimpse of Harry Hayward. Tension filled the frigid air. When Hayward showed up, the crowd surged towards him and a ring of deputies in charge of Hayward's protection had to fight back the mob and get him into the courthouse. I have to feel he also enjoyed that, though. Oh, I think he soaked up every minute of it for sure. Hayward's trial came first, and all his chickens came home to roost one by one. Everyone who was present at the morgue the night of Ging's murder attested to him acting like a guilty incarnate. The insurance agents, the doctor, the coachman he tried to bribe, each stepped up and added their piece to the saga. Then, after all the minor players were finished, it was time for Blixt and Adri to give their testimonies. Blixt related the entire story of his interactions with Harry, refusing to leave out his own guilt in the process. He had apparently had a religious epiphany while in jail and was intent on telling the truth, no matter how it made him look. And it was a damning testimony, as the jury got to see every step of Harry's idea unfold through the words of the malleable Swede. Equally damning was Harry's behavior during Blixt's time on the stand. Harry would audibly giggle at random make angry faces at Klaus Blixt, and scoff like a teenager when accused of something especially awful. When Blixt related Hayward's Looney Tunes-ass idea of decapitating Ging using the elevator at Ozark Flats, a wave of giggles swept through the crowd, and Hayward joined on in. Even when Hayward's attorney subjected Blixt to a withering, nine-hour cross-examination, his story never deviated from the truth as he experienced it. He stepped off the stand, believing he had done the right thing, and he awaited his own trial with docile, haunted acceptance. Then, Adri stepped up and corroborated every bit of Blix's experiences with Harry and added his own, and after the 
two star witnesses wrapped things up, the prosecution rested. Then, William Irwin's crack defense team gave their best effort at instilling reasonable doubt, but they were so hamstrung by the amount of evidence and testimony against their client, they looked, they looked like fools throughout the whole trial. One of their, one of their, quote, witnesses even forgot Klaus Blixt's name in spite of the fact that he was supposed to have intimate knowledge of Blixt's whereabouts the night of the murder. Another witness, a former stenographer for Adri Hayward, was charged with perjury immediately after the trial because of the obvious falseness of her poorly rehearsed statement, wherein she overheard Blixt and Adri talking in Adri's office, plotting Catherine's murder and their efforts to pin it on poor defenseless Harry. Oh boy, okay. Harry and Adri's parents took the stand and did the coldest shit imaginable. They straight up chose Harry over Adri. They defended Harry at every turn while painting their own son, Adri, as a spiteful, strange, possibly insane man who just had it out for his sweet little brother. Okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ask a, I'm gonna ask one question. I don't know if I have the answer, but... Was he? Were we... Are we Are we being led astray here? I guess you'll have to wait and find out. Like you would tell me. Finally, Harry took the stand. Because this man just couldn't get enough self-incrimination. As usual, he did himself no favors by refusing to give specific information about his financial dealings with Catherine or answer why he was the sole beneficiary on a pair of two-month-old life insurance policies. On the day the verdict was to be read, 2,000 people showed up at the labor temple. This is in February, and 2,000 people were sorely disappointed when they found out the verdict was being read back at the county courthouse. I was, so, I was going to make a want, joke. How do you make an angry mob more angry? Well, <laughs> let me tell you. Tell them they should go somewhere else. <laughs> but also I was going to make a joke and be like, get a job. <laughs> but that wasn't funny. Was, well, they all had jobs if they weren't I, on strike at this time. But I this know, was entertainment. I know, I, this was prime time. You know, nobody missed prime time. I know they all had jobs. They were on strike. Sort of, yeah. I, it's so not funny horde, when you have to explain it. The horde... <sighs> angrily trudged a few blocks to the courthouse only to be denied entrance so they all waited out in the february cold it took the jury three hours to find harry hayward guilty of first degree murder good judge seward smith handed down the first death sentence of his long career hayward was to be hanged at the hennepin county jail in three months so you can tell legal shit got hashed out pretty quickly back in 1895. Klaus Blick's trial... Not a, not a great thing. Not a great thing. <laughs> no, it. not always. Mm -hmm. But we've had people on waiting like 22 years in some of these stories. So, I, you know, you, right, we got to find, find the middle ground somewhere. Um, I mean, it's also when we get it wrong. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's really the kicker. That's the that's. Do you think... I don't think they got it wrong on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Klaus's trial followed Harry's, and it was kind of a snooze fest. He pled guilty, and he was sentenced to life in Stillwater Prison. I think his 
His repentant attitude and testimony against Harry saved him from the noose. So Blixt was shipped to the Stillwater prison on a train, accompanied by a crew of armed deputies and his wife. In a genius bit of foresight, the sheriff insisted that Blixt and the deputies wear street clothes and attempt to blend in with other passengers. Now, it might have seemed like a bit much considering Blixt was not the media draw of Harry, but then the train stopped in lumber country and 200 half-drunk, pissed-off lumberjacks stormed the train looking to hang Blixt from the nearest tree they hadn't chopped down yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's... It was a good one. But no one actually knew what Blixt looked like. They just expected this guy to be wearing an orange jumpsuit surrounded by deputies. After stalking through the train, the sea of angry red and black flannel exited. And the rest of the trip proceeded without incident. Okay, first of all, I feel like you got a couple of those things wrong. Orange jumpsuit, he's probably wearing stripes. I've seen movies from back in that time. Okay. <laughs> Let's get it right. And flannel. Let's be historically accurate here. Yeah. Harry, meanwhile, elevated his whole persona to an otherworldly level. During a conversation with a visiting reporter, Harry grabbed a broom and killed a large rat that kept skittering through his cell. He then strung the little rat corpse up with a piece of twine and proceeded to do a mock trial where he and the reporter attempted to figure out who killed the rat. (laughs) What the hell? So... I mean, I'd probably say... I I would... I'm going to go ahead and guess. I'd probably say it every episode. There's probably some mental health issues here. <laughs> um, but also, uh, it's 1895-ish sure, at this yep, point. 1895. Uh, I'd be pretty bored, too. I mean, yeah. you know. Well, let me tell you, Don. after a bit of theatrics, the jury... Did they figure it out? <laughs> yeah, yep, absolutely. The jury found Hayward guilty of the rat's murder. Dang, him too, huh? Yeah. Hmm. Hayward then convinced the watchman to tell the officer on duty there'd been a hanging in Hayward's cell. And for whatever reason, the watchman did just that, prompting the officer to dash into the cell block, thinking Hayward had offed himself. Instead, the officer came face to face, smashing into the dead swinging rat and Hayward laughing hysterically in the corner. I just can't. I... (laughs) Aside from entertaining himself, Harry tried every trick he could think of to escape. He attempted to make a wax imprint of a key he nicked from a careless janitor. He offered $1,300 to another janitor if he would agree to free him. From what wallet? Yeah, he's got a wallet out there. He's got a wallet out there, Don. Once he collects on that insurance, you know, he can pay everybody. He even invited Adri for a visit to jail for a little pitch meeting. His pitch was, Adri, what I want you to do, I want you to write a false confession so that I'm freed. And once you do that, 
I'll have some criminal buddies of mine smuggle you down to South America where we can meet up and live with the shepherds of Patagonia. Or here, uh, their brother of mine, uh, why don't you just get me in touch with your people and I'll smuggle you to South America. My people and your people. Right? Like, Of course, his I'm, real plan was to have Adri strangled outside of town, plant the confession letter on him, and then string him up in a tree. So that, yeah, Adri, Adri declined the pitch, fortunately. That's nice. One of Harry's last great, air quotes, great plans was conning a priest into believing Harry, a staunch atheist, was interested in converting to Catholicism. But after a few visits, the priest realized Harry's reach for jailhouse Jesus was total bullshit. The priest ceased his visits and decried Harry as a fiend whose adherence to atheism made him a, quote, callous, unrepentant, defiant destroyer of human life. Only Harry Hayward could piss off a priest to such an extent. Uh, Yeah. Wow. After the priest... Harry shifted his sole focus to the purpose of securing his insurance payout from Catherine's death. For real, he wrote letters to the insurance company from jail, wondering when and how he would receive his payment. That's actually, to this day, there are only certain states that have laws saying you can't collect insurance benefits on someone you've murdered if you're listed as a beneficiary. Okay, it's not a word to the wise, um, but in this case, in this case, the insurers were able to point to a clause in the contract that said, in short, if the beneficiary was convicted of and sentenced to die for the murder of the insured, the policy was null and void. Although his death was delayed slightly by appeals, Harry was still set to be hanged before the year's end. As the day approached, He seemed enamored with the prospect of rising from the dead after hanging. He asked the sheriff less than a week prior, Hey, sheriff, what are you going to do if I get right back up after I die? The sheriff, no stranger to rolling with a prisoner's weird logic, said he'd tuck a ticket to Europe in Harry's shirt pocket after the execution just in case. (laughs) Harry thought this was hilarious and called for three cheers for the sheriff. Ew. Hip, hip, hooray. Ew. Harry held on to the thin hope. Hold on. So he thinks he's just going to, like, Jesus his way out of this? like uh, Or that, or whatever. Yeah, he thinks he's going to something his way out of it. Yes. Man. Yeah, he, he held on to the thin hope that some final appeal would lead to his exoneration. But as time wore on and an execution date was set... Harry seemed to finally face reality. While he didn't seem nervous at all, even claiming that, quote, death is easy enough, Harry wanted to set straight the record of his crimes. He asked for the mayor's secretary, Joe Mannix, and his cousin, Ed Goodsell, both old acquaintances, to come visit and take dictation of his confession and final testament. Ah, uh, the, 18, the 1890s when a woman couldn't even be a secretary. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, right. During his final two evenings on this earth, Harry spent 
12 hours dictating an array of appalling crimes among various bits of arson, counterfeiting, and confidence games, Harry described directly and with little fanfare the three other murders he allegedly committed. He started by saying of his first murder, quote, You don't run across chances, you know, where there is any darn exciting thing like the killing of this girl. He had seduced a young woman in Northern California during one of his gambling trips, taken her out hiking, and shot her somewhere in the Sierra Nevadas, all because it seemed exciting and because he knew she had $700 in cash. He also mentioned a person with tuberculosis who he killed on a train ride through New New Jersey because that person was carrying a wad of cash and also because in Harry's mind, they were better off dead. Finally, he talked about killing a quote, his words here, a quote, Chinaman oh God. Thanks with for a chair clarification. Ew. while gambling in New York City. According to Harry, he knocked the man down, kicked him in the stomach, then grabbed his chair, put it on the man's head, and sat down as hard as he could, crushing his skull. When asked what prompted the brutality of this particular murder... Harry said, quote, those things come on a fella all of a sudden. You want to jab him once more for luck. Nope. I don't think they do. I don't, <laughs> no. I don't think they do. <laughs> no, no, mm-hmm. I, I, I agree, Don. Nope. During his recounting of these murders, Harry stopped to tell Mannix. He said, write this shit down. I want everyone to know while I'm telling you this, that I'm laughing. I want it known that I'm still the same jovial Harry that everybody once knew and loved. This on the night before his execution. Mannix and Goodsell asked Harry how often he thought of killing someone for their money. Harry said, quote, oh, dozens of times. He brought up a time he actually tried to get his cousin, Goodsell, to sign a revised version of his own will that Harry had drawn up. Guess who the sole beneficiary was? We don't have to anymore. Yeah. Luckily, Goodsell never signed it. Then he and Harry must have shared shared what must have been the most awkward of laughs over the situation. Remember that time I was going to probably kill you after you signed your life insurance policy over to me? Um, No. Right. Yeah. Wait, what? He, he. That was a hoot. Yeah. The three men talked late into the afternoon. And Mannix and Goodsell left Harry alone to have his last day. Before they went, though, Harry gave a recital of the poem that began this podcast, including this haunting final stanza. Be fair or foul, or rain or shine, the joys I have possessed in spite of fate are mine, not heaven itself upon the past has power, but what has been has been, and I have had my hour. Looky-loos, reporters, and family filtered in and out of the courthouse all day, either wanting to catch a last glimpse before Harry went to the gallows, or wanting to say an honest goodbye. Harry talked briefly with Adri, and finally, finally, gave Adri the apology he deserved. Though no record exists of what was said between the two men, no doubt 
Harry had a lot to apologize for. Proof or it didn't happen. I don't believe it. According to Adrian. It happened. Oh, all right. Yeah. Then I'll take it. He probably had to say that. His parents probably made him. <laughs> if you don't say this, we're not going to let you run the business anymore. Yeah. Man. With the stream of visitors ceasing as the night wore on, into the early morning of December 11th, 1895, Harry was collected, dressed in a black robe and cap that covered his face, and escorted to the freshly erected gallows in the Hennepin County Jail. Hayward bowed and greeted the small, curated crowd of reporters, family, and acquaintances with levity, and bounded up the stairs to stand beneath the noose. With his last words, Harry Hayward recited the poem that began this story, Happy the Man. He mentioned that he still didn't give a shit about religion, but also didn't want to disappoint the various religious leaders who had visited him in jail, so... He said in a perfunctory way, quote, Oh God, for Christ's sake, forgive me all my sins. <laughs> After talking about how he thought it was all pointless, as the noose was fitted around his neck, he called out to the crowd, quote, Keep up your courage, gentlemen. Then to the hangman, pull her tight, I'll stand pat. Harry Hayward was hanged on December 11th, 1895 a little over a year after orchestrating Catherine Ging's murder. He was a man who lived in a series of instants, who killed when the urge struck, a man who recounted grisly murders one second and laughed with his whole soul the next. In his twisted mind, he was the personification of living in the moment. Klaus Blixt died in Stillwater Prison in 1925. Catherine Ging was buried near her parents' home in her home state of New York. She was 29 years old. Ugh, so sad. Didn't see it coming. Never. Not, not for one second did she think her life was in danger. This was a man that she was friends with that she probably loved. And she was just a dollar sign to him. He's the worst. The worst. Sources for this episode of Midwest Murder, the timeline on this day.com and wikipedia.org. The story, The Killer Who Haunts Me in the Minnesota Monthly by Jack L. High. The book, Harry Hayward, Life, Crimes, Dying Confession, and Execution of the Celebrated Minneapolis Criminal. Celebrated Minneapolis Criminal by Edward H. Goodsell. The Infamous Harry Hayward, A True Account of Mesmerism and Murder in Gilded Age Minneapolis by Sean Francis Peters. And The Reader, um, the featured poem Happy the Man by John Dryden. This episode of Midwest Murder was written by Tyler Hancock, edited and produced by Joan Alanto, co-hosted by myself and Don Palumbo. And it's been a heck of a show here with you at the it folks has. at the Roosevelt Park Wait, Zoo. I earned, uh, I earned producer title today. Produced by Don Plumbo and John Lanto today. There you go. I plugged things in. Plugged the, plugged the thing in. <laughs> Thank you. I did. Thank you so much, Roosevelt Parks. Thank you, Mina, for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you.